Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Faceless Fly Fishing and Upland podcast. As always, I'm your host, Timber Pringle, along with my partner, Darcy Toner. Our guest today is Josh Nugent, owner of Out Fly Fishing, a guide outfit and fly shop. Today, we'll talk about how Josh grew up on the river and how his hobby snowballed into a career in fly fishing. We will also discuss in detail different fishing techniques for high water and runoff conditions, streamer fishing tactics, what patterns work, and how to drift them. We will also get into leader setups and stripping speeds. And when the river conditions are not fishable, why not go pike fishing? We'll discuss what works and what doesn't. I want to thank our sponsors today who make this channel possible. Orvis, for all your fly fishing and upland hunting and dog needs. Shop at orvis.com or visit a fly shop near you. And Diamondback Truck Bed Covers. Protect your gear with the toughest truck bed cover on the market. And it looks great too. All right. Um, We're super happy to have Josh on the podcast today. Um, Welcome, Josh. Thank you. Good to hear from you guys. Yeah, it's always good to talk to Josh. We've known Josh for uh, a few years now. and Quite a few. Yeah. Um, <laughs> definitely one of the more knowledgeable people that we know as far as fishing goes. Spent uh, more time on the water than, than most people. And, uh, should. should <laughs> most <yes>. people should. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> definitely. It's not necessarily healthy. It just happens. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Josh... Uh, we usually like to start off the podcast and asking people like uh, how they started fly fishing or where they started fishing. So I was watching a YouTube video yesterday and I thought it doesn't look that hard. And so I've been doing it since this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> where, did, where were you born, Josh? Where were you born? I was born in Calgary here. And then I lived the first few years of my life down in, uh, in Southern Alberta, a little town called Boyle. And my dad had a teaching job there. And, uh, I started fishing when I was I don't know, like two years old. When I was walking, I was fishing. And it was when I was five or six years old, we were on the Sheep River because my dad did his master's thesis. My dad did his master's in zoology and he was studying Franklin's growth. And he was based out of the, the Gorge Creek station for the University of Calgary station up there. And so that's where he spent so much time in university. And that was a very special place to him. It's actually even what our farm was named after. And we were on the sheep one day and it was my brother and I have got an older brother and my uncle and my dad. And one year, I think it was my uncle had taken up fly fishing and my dad took up bow hunting. And then they kind of showed each other what they'd done. And when you're a five or six year old kid with like a push button spin cast reel, and you watch somebody fly fishing and you watch the line waving through the air and you're just like, that's way cooler than what I'm doing. I need to be doing that. And so that was kind of how it started. And, you know, growing up, my brother was always a far better angler than I was because he was far more patient than I was. And I started to become uh, a better caster because as soon as I wasn't catching fish, I would start thinking like, I wonder how far I can cast. And I remember being at like, the most of the highwood on the bow when I was probably like, I don't know, seven, eight years old and hadn't caught fish in a few hours and start just like trying to see how far I could cast and thinking like, this is a pretty long ways, but how do I know how far it is? So then I would 
throw a cast up on shore, lay the rod down on the ground, and then like growing up on a farm and working on a farm, learned that, you know, your boot is about a foot long. And so toe to heel, toe to heel, pace it off and figure out how far I cast. And I remember saying to my brother at one point, I'm like, fishing is slow, eh? And he's like, you're an idiot. Like you haven't even been in the water in an hour. I'm like, that's a good point. That's a good point. I haven't had I? And so that was kind of where it started. My uncle and my dad would just kind of take us out and we would go with them. And, you know, it was one of those things where we spent so much time always kind of outdoors. We were either camping, like we camped all summer. We used to say we'd, we would come home a few times a summer just to make sure the, the house hadn't burnt down type thing. And then we were back on the road and camping again. My dad was a school teacher, so we had summers off and we spent the whole time just kind of camping and fishing and fall hunting and you know we'd start in the spring going out every weekend and yeah it was pretty pretty fortunate to kind of grow up that way and then what did you we ended up in go ahead keep going. sorry go ahead did you and you say we ended up in central alberta that's where my parents are now still on the farm and so it's right where you know the stoffer runs into the raven is 12 minutes from my parents' farm, like the baseball diamonds that I grew up playing baseball on were like, you know, hundred yards away from the Raven river and where it ran into the Red Deer river. And so there was that whole like Nordag area, Rocky mountain house that was 45 minutes to an hour away. So there was a lot of kind of fishing opportunities for us always growing up, which was pretty nice. Did you, did you ever take a break from fishing at any time or is like you went, you've, from that day you've always fly fished or was there like yeah always had i didn't fly i then fair question for sure i didn't fly fish as much through high school and college just because of um both sports and working so when i, I think yeah when i was 14 i started working the summer as full-time jobs and between working and um playing sports and then when I played probably the least I fished would have been when I was in college and because of college basketball the time commitment to that was just so intense and I was also working to pay for school so I didn't have to take out any student loans so that's the least I fished but it probably you know we still do a few trips a summer type thing with the family and go fishing but that was definitely the least that I fished for several years there and then when I moved from Red Deer to Calgary um, like I had always and only ever worked hard labor jobs. It's like one of those, like, he's not real smart, but he can lift heavy things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know and so <laughs> that, that was just what I'd always done. And so when it came to a big city like this, it was very weird. Like, well, all my life, I always had four or five people that were like, if you ever need a job, you come see me. And then I came to a city that has over a million people in it. And you're like, but, uh, don't know anybody that wants me to come work for them yet. <laughs> right. And so I, I remember saying to my parents who had grown up in town, like, how do you find a job in a city this big? My mom just laughed at me. She's like, you pick up a newspaper, you dummy, like look in the classifieds, find out who's hiring and then go drop off a resume. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and I ended up getting a job at wholesale sports and I worked in the fishing department there. And I had just gone from like three years of college basketball where we like we trained together we ate together we traveled together like we spent so much time as a group and i was you know i was training or playing basketball like 
40, 50 hours a week on top of your classes. And so I spent so much time around that group that when that was gone, I kind of, I needed something to fill that void. And when I first came to Calgary and I met these guys that I was, you know, working at the, at the fly shop with, it was all of a sudden fishing and that's what we did. And so we would fish like pretty much every night after work, we went fishing, fished every single one of my days off that summer. Like it was, it was crazy because I was, I was working five days a week and I put on, you know, 40,000 kilometers on my vehicle that summer going fishing. Um, that's while still working full time. Yeah. That's the price price <laughs> I know. Right. With fuel prices. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah, that was kind of, that was where fishing started and, and I've been in Calgary ever since now. And so that's so, 20 odd years ago. So did you start guiding like shortly after that? How long did it take you to get into guiding and open your own? Uh, so I spent, yeah. So, so it was when I first started working at that, at that shop, it was a bunch of the guys that I fished with. Like I was, I was really fortunate. A buddy of mine, George Watt, he and I had the same days off and he kind of took me under his wing and, you know, he taught me, I've forgotten more about Stillwater than most people probably know type thing that he's told me. He's just, he was such a knowledgeable guy and we had so much fun kind of fishing together and he had guided in Fernie and he had run like Tunkwell Lake Resort. And so I was so fortunate to have somebody, um, you know, it's, it's really funny when I look at it now, cause he was, he was my fishing buddy and he was definitely a mentor, but at the time it felt like he was fishing buddies and we would go certain places and we, cause we fished together so much. And like, I probably would have starved to death if it weren't for his wife packing me lunches. And it was one of those things that we started just like, I would always drive so that his wife could have the car and we would take my vehicle and then she would always pack a lunch for me so that I didn't starve to death because she heard that I was never bringing food <laughs> on these trips. And so she kept me alive that summer and uh, yeah, we fished a ton, but he and a few of the other guys there just kept pushing me going like, you should be guiding. And I was like, well, I don't really know how to do that. They're like, well, it's exactly what you're doing now, taking people fishing all the time, teaching them, helping them, except they would pay you. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> that sounds interesting. And so I, it wasn't honestly something that I had ever thought of or grew up thinking like, I can't wait to be a fishing guide. This is what I want to do. It was just from the urging of other people. And I mean, coaching is my background. It's what I had done. You know, I did a kinesiology degree. Um, my whole intention was just to coach at college. And I did that for a few years and it was the, it was the perfect off season of, of the fly fishing season. So they worked very well together coaching a winter sport and then guiding all summer. Um, and the, the whole fly fishing thing just kind of snowballed and just kept building and building and went from, it was just something that was paying for my undergrad and then graduate degrees. And then when grad school became a, you know, a, a fly fishing focused project when I did my thesis on the visual characteristics of expert fly casters, um, did eye tracking study that kind of kept another foot in that, fly fishing door and originally again guiding was just going to be to pay for the rest of my undergrad and graduate degree so I didn't have to take out any student loans and then when I was done school I was just enjoying the guiding too much and we were getting too busy for me to kind of take a step back so I just I would do that again in the off season of coaching and yeah like the biggest reason and the main person I would say for sure is George Watts 
that got me into it. And the other one was George Harper and George Harper is no longer with us. He passed away several years ago, but he was the one that originally owned Frenchies. Mm-hmm. And then the, the Butler brothers bought him out and turned it into wholesale sports. And then they ran it for years and years and grew that company. And George Harper continued to work there. And he was one of the guys that, um, you know, he was, he was older when I was working there, but he was always so encouraging. It would pull me aside and say like, there's a lot of people that are really negative and there's a lot of people that will criticize everything you do and don't listen to any of them because what you're doing is, is awesome and just keep doing it. And yeah, like that's, that's the reason I got into guiding was, was those guys is they encouraged me to do it. And I realized very quickly that's all my life. I had done the same sort of thing because coaching was always my, my background and my passion and what I wanted to do. And that's all, that's all guiding is, is you're coaching fly fishing. And it, it, it's a common theme, theme actually, like the more people we talk to, it's like, it seems every time we ask this question, there's like usually at least one or two people that are huge mentors in people's lives. Yeah. Like, and I think so much of like, whether it's hunting or fishing or so many things, but especially those two sports, it's like the key to, to everybody's success seems to be somebody that, that that kind of stuck their neck out for that person, saw something in that person and mentored them, you know? And, and, yeah. and it's such an important part of like who we are as human beings. And, but even like even who, who we are as fly fishermen. So, well, I was just going to make yeah. a comment though. Uh, you must've learned how to pack a lunch after you started guiding. Cause you'd have to feed your <laughs> clients, right? <laughs> yeah. And that was for sure. So like I, I grew up, where anytime we went fishing, hunting, or camping, whatever, like mom would always pack a lunch for us. And we just knew that like whatever she packed, you had about five days worth of food for four times as many people were there. (laughs) And so that was kind of how I always grew up that you make sure that there's lots of food. And, and especially um, when I, I got into guiding, one of the big things for me was understanding that like, there's so many parts of your day that are out of your control that just make sure you do anything that's in your control to the absolute best of your ability. <laughs> Cause the fishing might be horrible that day. The conditions might be horrible that day, but lunch better not be. <laughs> Actually we floated with you the one day um, we were in a different boat, but we floated with you. And then when we stopped for lunch, you pulled out this table and then a stove and all that you cooked us like this gourmet mm-hmm. meal on the side of the river. It was, we were so impressed. I was like, that was pretty good lunch. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that's Tom Windsor's fault. He was the one that got me doing hot meals. Um, like I remember when I was, when I started guiding, I was 21 years old. You can't tell someone that you've been guiding for 30 years. You haven't been alive for that long. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, well, what can you do? And again, I grew up on a farm where working outside and like physical labor was the norm. And if you were as kind of scrawny as I was as a kid growing up, like pulling your weight wasn't good enough. Cause that's not enough to move at one time. And so for me, it was one of those things. You can't tell someone you've been guiding for 30 years and it's not right to like undercut the going rate for guiding. So what could I do? Well, I could work harder. So I would, you know, I I never counted hours. I didn't watch a clock. I didn't, you know, just drift from the put into the takeout. I would roll back up. If there was a good piece of water, I would go through it again. And like, honestly, it's, it's commonplace that you guys spend enough time on the boat to see that, you know, boats are owned back up pretty common like 20, what, 21, 22 years ago when I started doing that sort of thing, I had guides pull me aside in the parking lot and tell me like this, 
whole like rolling back up and going through runs again this crap you got to stop it and i was like why what do you mean and they're like well you're making other people look bad yeah, yeah, yeah. And i was like <laughs> i just remember saying don't you also have orders in your hands like i feel like if you pull on those <laughs> your boat will go in that direction too exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like but you do have to dip the tips of the orders because if they don't get wet you don't slow down <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it was another time though, Josh, or it could have been actually the same float when we were with you. We uh, can't remember the exact stretch, but I know you had to row out at the end, uh, down there at McKinnon. Right. But I I don't remember where we started and the day was so long when we were out there and I know you had to row out and someone's like, whose idea was it to do this stretch? Because the day was so long, but the fishing opportunities were the best opportunities. Just the guys on the oars had to work so hard. And we were like Josh's idea because you wanted everybody to have the best opportunity to catch fish. And it was a good day. Yeah. I remember that. And it was because we were filming. And so it's again, like, that's one of the things that I've always felt a huge responsibility. Like if you're filming something about our fishery, like any day could be a tough day, but that's not what anybody wants to see on camera. And there's so many people whose livelihoods depend on this river, whether it's from guiding directly or shuttle drivers or fly shops or, you know, hotels that we put our clients in the airfare that they pay to get here. There's a lot of money that comes into the city because of the Bow River. And so if you don't show it well, and if you don't show it in a good light, you let a lot of people down. And so that's always been something that I felt kind of a lot of of pressure and responsibility. It's not just about your day. It's not just about, is this going to be a good show for whoever happens to be filming with you that day? It's, did you represent this river in the light that it deserves to be represented in? And that's, that can be a, a ton of pressure some days where you're just like, huh, I really wish the river wasn't fishing like crap right now because yeah. that would look better. Right. <laughs> but it's one of those things where that's, you know, the conditions are out of your control. Do you have enough kind of in your repertoire that you can find something else, try something else, do something else to try and make something work to, you know, can you, pull a rabbit out of a hat some days and some days I think you're pulling out of other places. Um, but you know, that's, that's kind of the job and you know, it, it can be super rewarding and so much fun. And other days, like you can, you can feel like a hero or you can feel like a zero. Like there's some days that that river fishes so well, you could put a monkey in our seat, rowing the boat down and you're going to catch fish. And then there's days that, man, you can have the most experienced guide working his butt off and you're still going to struggle. Like that's the nature of trophy fisheries and, and just weather, right? Mm-hmm. It's just the right 45 minutes and the right 45 feet, you know, of the, mm-hmm. river, of the river, right? And if you're in the right place at the right time, like it's, there's nothing quite like it, right? But you made it just past exactly. it just before that hatch started or just after the hatch ended or, you know, yeah, just like, or you're literally behind Josh, who's just rolled <laughs> up and down the that section three times and took all the fish away from you before you went up behind him. But oh yeah, like when yeah, Josh, yeah. you were with Tom By, and we were behind the it boat. It was you behind. and Nalto. It was Nalto <laughs> yeah. and you, and then us. And I was like, that's gonna be a tough. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily want to follow those two boats someday. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. sorry about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, but I mean, I've I've certainly been the guy that's following somebody else. It's like, man, 
let's start pointing out birds and stuff and get people looking around because I don't want them looking downstream at that boat that has another bent rod in front of us again. <laughs> right? Like we've all been that person that is looking around and everywhere you look, there's a bent rod except for in your boat. And that is the worst feeling in the entire world. Like when you feel that responsibility to your guests each day and you know that it's like, okay, I haven't figured something out that everybody else has. And some days like it's possible that it's, you've got the right flies on the boats in the right place. You've told everything what to do. And some people just aren't able to get it done. And that does happen. But I think as a guide too often, what you see is you have a tough day and the guy just blames the guests that, Oh, like they couldn't cast and they didn't listen. Yeah. Like, Oh, I said the same thing a hundred times. And what did you ever think of? saying it a different way because like it didn't seem to be working (laughs) i think it's easier to i think it's easier to explain it when they're catching fish in front of you i think it's a little harder if they're catching fish behind you that's the oh yeah that's the the worst scenario when you (laughs) go through a section then you look behind you and you're like oh how come they hooked a fish right behind me yeah yeah that's a little tougher that's a little tougher actually that's kind of actually this perfect like uh prelude to like what we uh, asked you to come on here and talk about, which is um, kind of high water conditions and uh, runoff kind of conditions. Because that'll be coming up when we put this podcast out. Yeah, about, it, yeah. yeah, yeah. This should come out Shortly. probably late April, sometimes may, maybe early May, and that's kind of when runoff starts around the province, depending on what uh, uh, drainage you're in, for sure. Yeah, and so that's one of the things that like. It's funny because, you know, high water or runoff conditions are one of the the conditions I used to actually like fishing a lot um, going back kind of 15 to 20 years ago. It was kind of where I felt quite comfortable. I used to, especially when you're younger than everyone else and you feel like you've got to prove something and you've got to prove yourself and all the things that people said, oh, that's too hard to do or that's, you know, that's not ideal. I don't want to do that. Those are the things that I'm like, okay, that's what I want to focus on. When people said, well, sure, you can cast a whole fly line, but you know, you can't cast a whole fly line if you've got an indicator and multiple weighted flies on there. So I was like, okay, well, that's what I'm going to work on. Oh yeah, you can do that with a dry fly, but you're not going to throw a whole fly line if you've got a sink tip and two big streamers on there. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to work on that. Yeah. And so when people started saying, well, like, oh, the river's muddy, you can't fish it now. I was like, well, are they really not there? And You know, there's certainly a point, and that's the thing about runoff that people have to understand. A ton of the fishing that happens during high water, dirty water, will be guides when they're not working. And so you, there's lots of conditions like that that I wouldn't take somebody's money to fish when the water's really high and dirty, but I'd go fishing with a couple of buddies to just see, like, at what point does this turn around? At what point is this fishable? And I... I remember a specific week in 2004, 2003 was a really kind of dry, really hot year. And then in 2004, we had a lot of rain. Uh, We had a lot of broken weed in the river all year, high water, like so many storms. And I remember people were just kind of canceling trips left, right, and center. And we were even, you know, pushing outside of runoff where runoff should be gone. And you're in middle of July and we still had like, high water like peak runoff type flows and and clarity and i remember picking up clients that i've been on the water a ton 
and I was fishing kind of every day and I had somebody coming into town and they're like, I've heard that the water is kind of high. I'm like, the water's super high. There's a lot of color to it. Um, as long as you're okay with throwing some bigger bugs and throwing streamers and stuff like that, it's been fishing pretty well. We're not going to hit big numbers of fish, but the size of the fish we've been seeing has been really impressive. And I remember I met that guest at a fly shop in the morning where he was getting his fishing license and the fly shop said to the guest, Oh, you're going out today. Like we've canceled all our trips because the river's so high and it's fishing terrible. And like, I knew the guys in there, none of them have been on the water. Right. And it was one of those, like, really, you just did that. And it, you just got thrown underneath the bus where they said that. And now the client was like super worried. He's like, should we be fishing right now? I'm like, listen, if you don't want to go, we don't have to go. I'm telling you, I've been on the water a lot and it's been good. And so we went and he did a half day that day. Cause he had like a conference he was at in the morning. And then, so we just fished in the afternoon and remember the guy's first fish, he was from the Pennsylvania area. And so the guy was used to pretty highly pressured water. He was a good stick. Like he could cast, he could mend, he could fish, he could strip streamers. And the guy had clearly fished a ton. And in the first like half hour of the trip, he got a 19 inch brown, which as you know, here is not like a standout fish. It's a, maybe a little bigger than our average size fish, but it was nothing exceptional and the guy was pumped it was the new personal best for him in terms of size of brown he catches browns all the time back east but he'd never caught one this size so he's on top of the world he's like oh this was so worth doing i'm like okay sweet we keep floating and he gets like a 23 ish inch fish and like he was super pumped and then he got like to this day i remember this day and i remember the dude really well he got one of the prettiest browns i've ever seen it was a male that we taped it at 26 like just spectacular, like the colors on it, the spots, the jaw, the kite, the little slot in the nose that the kite fit into. I've seen so many fish since then. And that's still one of the, I think the prettiest Browns I've ever seen. And then he got another like 21 and a 22 that day. And so like every fish absolutely crushed his personal best in the past. And he was like, this was unreal. But then he still had that thing in his mind where the fly shop had said, Oh, we've canceled all our trips. Cause it's not, it's too high and it's too dirty and we're not going. And so at the end of the trip, we're like, we're pulling into the boat launch. He's like, you know, if the river's still this high, should we even bother going tomorrow? <laughs> and I was like, what? I'm like, really, man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, w you were here, right? Like you remember what we just did? Like every fish you hooked, every single fish you hooked, and it wasn't a lot. I mean, we were on the water for five hours. We did a half day and like you got a 19, a 21, like a 22 or 23 and a 26. Mm -hmm. Like, so yeah, you didn't catch a, a, a ton of fish, but you caught a lot of quality fish. And again, this was only a half day trip. So, and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, I don't know why I said that. Which is not, or I just, I guess they kind of, but that's that first impression when someone tells you you shouldn't be fishing at that time. It can, it can kind of stick in your head that like, well, there's no point fishing. And 100%, there's been tons of trips that we have postponed because the river is not fishing well. And when kind of runoff first starts, you know, that as the water's coming up, you can still often get fish to eat. When you're at the peak of a runoff, or if, especially if you're in flood type conditions, that can be super tough to get fish. It absolutely can. And you think about the analogy I use with people often is it's like if there's a giant dust storm 
would you go out and have a picnic in it? Right. And, and that's them eating it. A, they don't have eyelids. So all of that sediment in the water can't be the most fun. They can't see that far to see where their food is coming from and be able to kind of pick it out, track it, intercept it and eat it e as easily. So it's going to be a lot harder. And we can clearly see on flood years when you have high water for a long period of time, the fish come out of runoff really skinny mm -hmm. because they have not been feeding as much as they normally would. But you don't need to wait until that water is crystal clear again. And the number of people that are like, Oh, I'm just waiting for it to clear up so we can fish dries again. And sure. Okay. If you want to fish dries, you're, you're going to need to wait until it's cleaner. But when you get a river that goes from that, like chocolate milk looks thick, dark Brown to, it starts to get that olive tinge in it, man. Like that is one of my favorite times to fish the river. If you're down with streamer fishing and man, like some of the biggest fish that I've ever seen are in that kind of week after the dirtiest water you have when it first starts to clean up, like our apex predators, like, like a brown trout, they're more comfortable feeding under the cover of darkness. Well, when you've got a really dirty river, you're going to have, you're mimicking that cover of darkness. Suddenly that predator feels much safer to come out and feed. Like, they don't feel as vulnerable because they're not as easily spotted by birds and all other predators. And so some of the biggest fish I've ever seen caught are on some of the dirtier water days. Now I have rarely ever seen really, really dirty water days where people just annihilate it and you, you hook fish after fish in runoff. If we have no rain for three weeks and it's August and the water's getting low and super clear, and then we get a big dump of rain and the river bumps up, you know, it comes up a foot, the flow has come way up, the water gets colored, like I will give my left leg to be on the water that day and fish. Because if it's been super low and super clear and those fish have felt super exposed and vulnerable for weeks at a time, and all of a sudden they get like dirty water, man, fish can go crazy. And that's some of the, the most insane streamer fishing days I've ever had are typically those scenarios where you're either at the tail end of runoff where it first starts to clean up and they, that first chance for them to feed or when you get that short-lived dirty water that, you know, it's been super low and super clear for a long time. And now all of a sudden those fish feel that they're not, they're not exposed and they go to town sometimes and it can be just, it can be silly. I've also had days where it gets dirty like that. And it's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, there's no guarantee. Do you, so do you have like a standard streamer setup that you would fish? Like do you fish one streamer, or two streamers or. So um, when it's dirty water, I'll fish a, a very different setup than I will when it's clear water. I'll typically fish um, two streamers and I will typically, um, fish different streamers than one if the water's clear. One, I'll fish bigger just so that A, you're pushing more water and there's more vibration for the fish to pick up on. And B, the other thing that I, I try and make sure if I'm fishing dirty water is I want colors that are going to throw the darkest shadows possible. Because if you think about dirty water, a fish can't make out details the same way when the water's crystal clear. When the water's crystal clear, you know, the fly patterns that I use are going to be more natural. They're going to be more lifelike. Typically, they're going to be smaller sizes. When you get into that dirty water, they can't see as well. They can't see exact um, 
details, but what do they see? They see profiles and shadows in the mud type thing. What throws the best shadow, the best profile? Your dark colors. So your blacks, your purples, your chocolate browns, your olives. Those are the colors that I will consistently go to when the water gets dirtier. I also like yellow when the water gets dirty. Um, but I also will go to typically something that's going to push water. So either like a spun wool head, like a sculpin pattern or something that has a spun deer hair head, because again, they can't see as far. And so if we want them to pick up on the fact that our flies there and not have it just go by completely unnoticed, I want something that's going to throw the best profile and it's also going to kind of light up their lateral lines the most with something that's twitching and popping and moving. And one of the biggest things that I'm going to do too, if I'm fishing two flies, I try and fish two flies that have completely different types of movement in the water. Because when I strip and then pause and strip, I don't want two things moving uniformly through the water. And when the water's muddy, it's, it's probably not as big a deal as when it's really clear. Cause if it's really clear and your fish can see your streamers coming from 15 to 20 feet away, cause the water's so clear. The last thing I want is two streamers moving through the water in an identical pattern and movement. They dart the same, they glide the same. I'm going to use something that, that, that moves completely different. So you put something like a dungeon up front and like a Crelix minnow on the back because that Crelix minnow is meant to dart and drop, whereas that dungeon is going to twitch and it's going to bob and that deer hair head's going to push water. So they move very differently. And when you stall the dungeon, it's going to kind of twist on its side and hover because it's, you know, yes, they're internally weighted, but that deer hair head also helps it kind of float and is more buoyant. So they're, they're going to kind of stay somewhat neutrally buoyant most of the time. But as soon as you pause on a Crelix minnow or a little clouser or a micro leech or something like that, it's going to drop and dive. And so now as it starts to drop and dive, it can pull back on that front fly. And then we, when you twitch again, it's going to pull that front fly and then there's going to be a delay and it yanks on that back fly. So now they're not moving in unison, which looks kind of unnatural. You don't see a lot of fish that are like, I'm going to move the exact same way he moves. They're so, darting and they're moving in an unnatural pattern. So Josh, is, is there ever a time where you would uh, choose to nymph during high water over, you know, choosing to streamer fish? Absolutely. And some of, some of the best, um, higher water days I've had have definitely been when we were nymphing and when we're nymphing, we're often nymphing or with streamers. And so when the water gets, if the water's really dirty, I would be more inclined to use streamers under an indicator than strip them because if it's super dirty and they can't see more than six inches in the water, like it's really hard to do a strip shorter than that where you're not pulling that fly immediately out of the fish's field of view right? If they can only see six inches and I make one strip, that's probably six inches long, plus it's drifting in the current, that fly's gone and they can't see it anymore. Whereas if I dead drift a streamer by just hanging it underneath an indicator, now there's the opportunity for that fish to do less work. Um, they don't have to chase. Like If the water's really high and there's a ton of push, like fish are smart. They're going to figure out where to go and how to get out of the heaviest current. They're not going to hold in the heaviest current where they have to work all the time. They're looking for little pockets and little nooks and crannies. And that's where it can be difficult if I just, you know, let's say I'm using a heavy San Juan worm and a stonefly trying to get down. 
Well, if I'm fishing like buckets and runs that have a lot of flow in them, that can be tough because a lot of those fish are going to push to the edges at that time because like fish don't want to fight the heavy current. They're going to look for pockets where they can get out of the current. And that's why when you look at the shoreline, like what happens when you flood the grass on a river? You've got like, you look at the lower bow and we saw this, you know, this 50 mile stretch of the lower bow, this blue ribbon stretch. When that water comes up and you flood all the grass on the sides, you just put 50 miles of coffee filter down both sides of the river, right? All of that grass, all of those roots, all of that, that helps slow the water down. When the water slows down, all the suspended sediment can actually fall and settle out of it. And so you are going to get the cleanest and the slowest water against the banks. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, fishing, high water, dirty water can be so exciting because often you have 95% of the fish in 5% of the water, mm-hmm. like go find structure on the shorelines. So absolutely you can fish um, a stonefly nymph. You can fish, uh, you can fish a worm, something. I, I wouldn't fish small nymphs typically if it's dirty water, because I just don't think they can see them very well at the point that, you know, I, I think the water's cleaned up enough that there's more than a foot of visibility, then that would change and you can start fishing some smaller stuff again. But stonefly nymphs and the stonefly nymph, obviously their emergence coincides with runoff. Like at the end of runoff is when we see all those stonefly nymphs starting to migrate to the shorelines and then they start hatching. And so, you know, fishing a stonefly nymph underneath an indicator tied to the shore can be awesome. Sometimes even when the, the whole river can look filthy and then you look at the edges and that first like two and a half, three feet up against the shoreline can be surprisingly clear where you're like, okay, I've got 10 to 12 inches of viz in the first two feet off the bank. Once you get outside of that and the flow picks up, well, that sediment is still suspended because it's moving quickly enough that it's, it's really dirty. That can be hard to fish sometimes with an indicator. And sometimes like you can have some great days fishing just a really big buoyant stonefly pattern and put either a stonefly nymph underneath it or put, you know, a, a leech underneath it and fish those tight to shore. And that can be a little easier sometimes to cast if you're casting into, you know, tight quarters fishing a bank and you can drop that dry in there and you skate it out. And it's funny because as soon as you put a dry fly on the surface, people immediately don't worry about dragging it as much if it's something like a stone fly that you're going to skate. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas if they drag that indicator, they're like, Oh no, I did something wrong. It's like, you know, if the water's dirty and you throw in, a stone fly or a leech or some streamer underneath your indicator. And you're only running that indicator two feet above that fly. Cause you're fishing right up against that shoreline. It's totally fine to throw it in there, drag it out until it'll drift where that fly is not going to get hung up immediately. And then you can let it drift for a bit and then toss it in. It's something that also allows people that haven't necessarily fished as much like streamer fishing in high water, where it's just like pound the banks and it's cast after cast after cast. And you're trying to hit every pocket that can be really exhausting and it can also be really challenging for someone who's newer to it. So when you've got newer guests putting, you know, putting an indicator on there and having them cast it, be able to just kind of drag it and twitch it off the bank and then let it dead drift for a little while and then pick it up and cast it again. It, it can happen at kind of a much slower cadence and it can feel a lot more relaxing and not as panicky. Cause that's one of the things that streamer fishing often does is when people see each pocket they start to forget that it's okay if you skip one of those pockets, like hit as many as you can, but don't freak out because you missed one. Like just 
hit the next one that you're ready for. Yeah, yeah. Then you start um, getting cross lines on the boat when people start casting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you? Do yeah, you, do you, do you, oh, I missed that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you? So, are, are you running tapered leaders or like just straight mono off of your fly lines? And like, what fly lines would you use for streamer fishing? As far as like sinking um, or non-sinking, or yeah, so it just it kind of depends a lot on the conditions and how um, how we're going to be fishing. So I will use sink tips as well as dry lines for streamer fishing, just depending on conditions. And some of the time, where if we're fishing, if fish are holding really tight to shore and they're in those little pockets and they're in those nooks and crannies it can be a lot easier to throw a dry line and throw something like, you know, the Orvis bank shot lines. Those are a really aggressive head on them. Um, they'll turn over big flies really easily for you, but now you can still mend and you can still control that line. You don't have this, you know, heavy current between you and the shoreline that grabs a hold of your sink tip and starts ripping those flies off the bank right away. Um, it's also why I really like the, for sink tips that like bank shot that has a really short tip mm -hmm. when the, when the water is really high and fast, a tip that's less than six feet long where you can drop the fly in there and keep the fly down, but you can still mend the head of that fly line and you can mend upstream. So now when you twitch and when you pop, you pull that fly upstream against the current. And then all of a sudden, you know, like an injured bait fish, it tries to swim and it can't, and it gets kind of swept back down and then you twitch it and it goes upstream. But when you think about, you know, that high water situation, if those fish are holding really tight to the bank, they're there because they don't want to fight the heavy current. So if I just cast quartering down or perpendicular to the boat and that fly lands up against the, the shoreline, the current's going to grab my fly, or sorry, the current's going to grab my fly line and pull the fly out of that pocket so quickly that it's going to cut down drastically on the number of fish that you're actually going to be able to hook. But if you cast quartering down and you throw a big upstream mend, now your fly line and that leader are actually parallel to the bank. So when you strip the first three, four, five times, you're keeping that fly in the pocket longer in front of the fish longer. And so much of it, like I say, when we're, when we're streamer fishing, and especially in high dirty water, I don't think it's, we're not really feeding that fish. It's that whole like home invasion. Like we're just trying to piss them off mm -hmm. and we're trying to go like, get out of here. And I use this analogy with people a lot. It's the whole, like the old boy sitting on his porch, which every day I feel closer to this old guy, but the guy sitting on his porch with the prize roses out front. If some kid comes screaming by on his bike and is like, I'm going to get your roses. And he's going mock 10 and, and doesn't even slow down. Like, do you think the old boy's going to get up off his rocking chair and chase him down the street with a broom? Like, the threat's not there. You don't have the time or the energy for it, and you're just like, whatever, just go away, right? If I'm casting downstream in heavy, high flows because of runoff, and I'm stripping downstream, my fly is moving so fast, it'll do that flyby, and maybe a fish boils on it, and maybe if they do, they're some of the most explosive takes you'll see, but it's so much more work. Right. Where now when you think about the scenario, that, that analogy with the old boy, what if the kid all of a sudden stops and gets off his bike and starts walking towards the roses? Well, now there's a good chance the old boy is going to stand up, right? And he stands up and grabs the broom. If the kid hops on his bike and takes off again, he's probably going to be like, see, I still got it. I chased him off and I didn't even have, 
we'll see that where you drop a fly in there and a fish boils on it. And he's telling it like, let's be honest. If that pro wanted that fly in its mouth, it would be in its mouth already, but they boil on it. Cause they're going like, get out of here. Like, this is my spot. The water's high and muddy and I don't want to be out there fighting that current. I want to be here and I have stayed clean to this spot. So get out. And they give them that little warning boil on it and they flash on it. And if that fish doesn't leave, well, now they're going to do something, but they don't want to have to. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, I really don't think that that's a feeding response. I think it's just that territorial response is like, no, I'm already here. Find a different spot. And that's that whole, like, if that kid stops, gets off the bike and starts walking up at his prize roses, well, he might come off the porch and start coming at that kid with the broom. Right. And, and so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to elicit a response out of a fish that, they probably don't want to feed again. Do you want to go for a picnic in the middle of a giant sandstorm? Probably not, but there's going to be a point that you're like, I've still got to eat because I'm hungry. Right. And so there's a point that they're going to need to feed some, but that territorial response is probably, I think a much higher likelihood of hooking some of these fish than a feeding response when that water's high and when that water's muddy. And so finding eddies and, you know, flooded grass and places where the water can slow down and the sediment can actually drop and it doesn't stay in suspension anymore can be a huge key to your success there. And that's where the fly line that I would use would depend on that situation. Mm -hmm. So if we're bombing into, go ahead. Don't you you think a bank fisherman could kind of, kind of use that or like a wade fisherman, I should say, you know? Depends. hundred percent. Yeah. That same kind of tactic where he could probably work his way upstream, find those kind of back eddies, those soft spots, and then maybe just like high stick a streamer in there or like kind of jig it through those, those sections. Do you think that he would be just a hundred percent? It works. And, and I've done it tons and, and taught people to do it and watch people do it. Like you can absolutely catch fish from shore when the water's high. And a lot of people think that for streamer fishing and, and you're right. And to be fair, like all I've talked about is from the boat because that's most of what we do when we're guiding on the boat, but you can totally also, you know, go upstream and then start fishing your way down where you throw a cast down. That's four feet off the bank. You throw your men towards the bank and then you start twitching and popping your fly into those little pockets. And like you can manipulate the movement of that fly so much with a mend and it's it's so much fun because you throw a mend in towards the bank and now you start steering that fly in towards the bank and then you can pop a mend out away from the bank and that fly will start going out and so you can make it look like this bait fish that got stuck out in the heavy current he's desperately trying to get out of the current and he slides into that pocket and you see a fish boil on the fly and your line doesn't go tight so you know he hasn't hit your fly yet all he did is boil on it you throw that little mend and get that fly to start going out and often that fish will be like great i did it but you have to also be able to read and react that's why if the water gets too dirty that you can't see your fly at all and you can't see a fish boil or fish flash on your fly it gets much harder but when there's just enough color like just it's just clean enough that you can see either that shadow or that little bit of flash or you can see your fly as long as it's within the top you know foot of the water column that helps so much to be able to read and react to a fish's body language because any angler that can look at a fish and tell like that was not a feeding response that fish boiled on my fly it didn't hit my fly now i I know that fish i have its attention 
but I haven't done enough to get it to eat yet. I haven't done enough to get the old boy to stand up on the porch and come over and swap me with the broom yet. Right. And so now you need to aggravate that fish. If I start stripping harder, I go like set, like I'm going to recast because I saw the fish boil on my fly. Well, I'm probably done and that fish probably won't come back. But if he boils and I twitch it and then I let it all of a sudden drift back into a spot again, it's one of those like, did you not just see me chase you out of here? Like what makes you think that you're welcome in here again? And it slides back into, and it's amazing how often that fish will hit again and, and hit multiple times. And like, I'll never forget fishing with, um, Nauto's brother, Yost, like Nauto's our head guide. We've been guiding together. I don't know, like 15 years ish now. And Yo should come out on one of those days where the water was high and it was dirty and we were streamer fishing and, Oh my goodness. It was silly. And I remember he had a cast where a fish boiled on his fly 13 times between shore and the boat. Right. And most anglers I know would never have got the fish to come that far, but he's a super fishy guy and he understood the body language that fish boiled, but it didn't hit. And so he kept twitching and popping and he got the fish excited by kind of popping with the rod tip and popping the fly harder and like lighting up its lateral lines but moving at shorter distances so that it didn't just disappear into the mud where the fish is like, well, I did my job. I chased him off. I can go back and hide again. Right. Where it didn't go that far away. So that fish is going like, get out of here and he'll throw him in so that that fly then drifted back into that pocket and that fish boils on it. And then he, you know, at the same time, like that, the analogy with the old boy, if the kid gets off his bike and starts walking at the roses and you jump up and start walking across the lawn to him and he starts walking on a, like a beeline straight at you, you could go like, okay, this guy's psycho. <laughs> Have the roses. I'm out. Yeah. Right. So there's a point that you're like, that's not a natural behavior. And that's, you know, and that could be terrifying and the fish leaves. And so you have to kind of think about like, what would be a natural behavior if a predator ran at prey and like opens his mouth and you can see this in clear water and like, when the water's clear, you'll see a fish run at it. Like bull trout do this a lot. The other fish I've seen do this a ton. What's really cool is a peacock bass will do this where they open their mouth because they've got such a huge mouth and the inside of their mouth is so white that like, that's gotta be the most terrifying thing for any prey is to see the white of a predator's mouth like that. And you'll see a fish do that. That's not really in feeding mode that they're going like, get lost, get out of here. And if a fish opens its mouth, that's, that's a threat to, whatever that prey is like, get lost. This is your last warning or you're going to be inside this yap and they'll hit because of that. And you can get a fish. If you can read that body language successfully that like this fish doesn't want to chase me stripping as fast as I can out in the mud right now, because two strips in the fish has no idea where that fly went. It's so far out in the mud that like it's gone. Have you and ever so, seen, have, have you ever, so you, you talk about like the fish coming out and smacking the fly, right? With, or boiling on yeah. it, right? Or, or hitting it on its side. Do you ever think that they're doing that to try to stop it for a second? Like stop the other fish? So like what I mean by like stun it so that they can come around and eat it after the fact? Do you think that's a possibility? For sure it's a possibility. Like the fish do everything that, we don't think that they will. And we come up with theories of what they do and what they don't. And they prove us wrong constantly. Um, there are certain species of fish like lake trout do that a lot where um, they'll go through and they'll actually, I remember talking to this lodge owner, he was looking at a bunch of flies. I was tiny. He's like, these are perfect. He's like up North where we have, we've got these bait fish and the lake trout will just like beeline through a school and they'll just 
smack them hard with their tail. And when they smack them with their tail, like the whole school, he said, they'll flare their gills. And you see all of a sudden this big flash of red. And so like that silver with the red in there or the white with the red, he's like, that's the perfect imitation. This guy bought like every white red fly that I had. It was telling me that story. He said, as soon as they smack them with their tail, they double back and then they clean up the mess. And you think about like billfish in the ocean and some of these, the cool footage you see of a billfish going through and just kind of wrecking a bait ball. Well, they'll swing that, that bill through it and just cut stuff up and the other fish will feed down in the bottom and then they'll come around and they'll take turns who goes through and kind of wipes out that bait. So I'm sure trout will do that in certain instances, but there's also times that I think that honestly fish are just annoyed and we've angered them and pissed them off and their intention is not to eat it. It's to just get it gone. And going back to that day, like when I was fishing with Yosh, he had a time that uh, like a fish, I don't remember how many times it boiled, but when that fly landed next to the bank, it boiled immediately on the land. And then he was able to read and react to that fish and it boiled again and it boiled again. And then right off my oar, this fish just smoked it and the fish came flying and it went like three feet through the air and lands behind us. And the fly went flying, this big bright yellow dungeon goes flying and lands three feet to the right. And Yosha's like, he crushed that. How did I miss that fish? I'm like, dude, you couldn't hook that fish. I watch it. Again, it's different when, when you don't have the rod in your hands and you're just the guy that's the spectator in that situation. It's a lot easier to process stuff because you're not thinking about, okay, when the line goes tight, I have to strip. I have to move away from the rod. When I'm going to set down away from the fish. You're just watching. That brown trout's mouth was completely closed. I watch it come up and smoking. It. it looked like an orca knocking a seal through the air. <laughs> its mouth was completely closed. And that was probably the fourth or fifth time that it had boiled on that fly. But again, it boiled on that fly and he kept the fly in that fish's wheelhouse. He annoyed it. He pissed it off and the fish just kept getting more upset, but he never took it away so fast that the fish was like, aha, I did my job. I protected my spot. I chased it off. Now I can hide my spot again. It just kept that fly kind of drifting back in and then twitching it away. And like when the fish started to come after it, he would speed the fly up because Again, it wouldn't be natural if a predator starts running after the prey that the prey doesn't speed up. But if you speed up too much, that fish is satisfied and it wants to leave. And, like, I've had that on clean water days. Like, there's some brown trout streams down south that have really clear water in them where I've had a fish that I cast on the left side of the boat. Fish boiled when it landed. We brought it all the way across the river. My buddy who did a great job on the sticks brought us all the way across to the right-hand side of the river because he's trying to row and stay away from this fish. I didn't recast. I just kept throwing big men's and I'm throwing loops in it to kind of move it downstream and speed it up. And then I'm throwing men's the other way to stall the fly because you would see this fish. It would start chasing after it. And if you sped it up, it would get excited and it would come after it. And then once it got far enough away from shore, he would immediately turn around and start going back. You're like, aha, I did my job. As soon as you stalled the fly, it was just like he would turn on a dime. He's like, are you kidding me? I just chased you off and you're going to come back. And he would start ripping after it again. And it's the longest I've ever had a fish chase. And it was clear water there so we could see all this. It was so interesting to see that, that I did not recast. All I did is just kept throwing loops of line to either speed the, the fly up or slow the fly down and twitch it and pop it. If and the fish would just get so annoyed. It never actually hit it in the end. But it followed it for over a minute. And like a, a full minute is such a long time when oh, yeah, you've got a fish crazy. chasing yeah, yeah. you. 
right? We went all the way across from left to right, and then we went all the way across from right to left, mm. and that fish followed it the whole way. And several times it tried to leave and go back to its spot, and you twitch it hard and then stall the fly, and it would be like, seriously, you again? And it would come ripping back. You know, it's... You get a lot of people from, like, out of the... out of Like, not... You get people... Obviously, you get people, like, locals around Calgary and, and like, kind of seasoned trout fishers for sure and, and fishermen, but... Like if somebody was coming up here, right. And you're like, okay, Mm -hmm. it's pretty good chance might be high water, you know, or a pretty good chance. Like the conditions may not be optimum. Like how, how far do they need to know how to cast? And like, what's the best thing they could probably practice before if they came over to fish for you for one day of like streamer fishing? Um, If you're streamer fish, something like that, honestly, when the water's high and dirty, you don't need to cast far. And that's the thing that like, if the fish can only see a foot, why are you holding the boat 60 feet from the bank? (laughs) Right. Like, and and I see that where guys are used to like, this is the distance we need to run a boat when the water's really clear. We're going to spook the fish. Cool. Yeah, I get that. Um, But if the water's so dirty that the fish can only see a foot, well, you can row the boat 30 feet off the shoreline. So all guys have to be able to do is just like throw a roll cast or be able to throw a short cast and like twitch and pop a lot where you don't even necessarily need to do a lot of stripping where you can throw your cast in there and then you throw that upstream and twitch, 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 pick up recast, twitch, twitch, twitch. So that's like, you really need less technique at that point. Yeah. But like distance accuracy. So like being able to judge 30 feet. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of being able to judge like exactly to that point because probably if you can land the, the fly within an inch or two of the shore, you're probably, you know, for each for sure. inch or, or for each couple inches, you're probably your chance of hooking a fish, like, you know, goes down for sure. Yeah. 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 If you're, if you're totally too far agree. away. So, so probably yeah. trying to, you know, if, if, if you got some space or a backyard or something like that, probably keep it at 30 feet or less. And, but yeah. just try to hit, don't try to hit the, the, the edge of the ring or I mean the center of the ring, but try to hit the edge right so yeah. you're like trying to keep kind of get that accuracy down to try to get it as close as possible to that shore so you must be running like and, and it, pretty heavy leaders then too right like yeah like i tell people i i fish as heavy as you can get away with if i can get away with steel cable i will run steel cable man <laughs> like lose the fewest number of flies and lose the fewest fish possible there are situations that the heaviest we can get away with is 6x right if that's as heavy as you can fish then that's as heavy as you can fish when the water's dirty if they can't see a foot why are you fishing 5X, right? And there's a ton of people that come into the shop and they're buying flies and they're like, man, I'm losing a lot of streamers. Like, you know, um, should I go up from 5X? And I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> like way, way up. Like it's good for fly sales, but <laughs> um, like fish as heavy as you can get away. So I will fish, uh, like I'll fish 15 pound. I'll fish 0X without any hesitation if the water's dirty. If they can't see and they can't see a fly in any detail, they cannot see that tippet in any detail. So fish as heavy as you can get away. That's all. That's always my thing. Do you use a lighter, like a slightly lighter one for the second streamer or, or the same yes. for both? Yeah. Exactly. So always, I always run lighter on the second fly because if you hang up the back fly, if they're on the, the same strength of tippet and I hang up on the back fly, I could still lose both flies. But if I'm running like 12 pound of the first fly, but only 10 pound of the second fly, and the second fly gets hung up, well, at least I salvage it and I, I still keep one. Or even worse, if it's fishing really tough and you finally hook a fish 
and then that fish breaks you off and they're both the same, you still don't know what fly it was on, right? Whereas if I get broken off and neither fly is there, well, I know that that fish was on the top fly. If I lose the fish because it breaks me off and it comes back and I've got the top fly, well, you know it was on the bottom fly. At least now maybe color gives you an indication that, okay, well, like, you know, I just changed and put on that olive fly. I was fishing black and brown before and I switched to olive and now I got a hit on olive. So, you know, you, any kind of advantage you can get or give yourself when the conditions are really tough and the water's dirty like that, I definitely take. And that's why, you know, two different strengths of, of tippet for the two different flies, if you're fishing two flies, I, I would always do. And I don't always fish two flies when it's dirty sometimes. If, like, if you're trying to hit pockets and if you're finding fish are tucked really tight to shore and they're in those calm pockets and they're in the eddy that's, you know, because of a clump of grass and then they're in this tiny little pocket that's there just because there's a you know a rock that's there and the next one there's a little log that sticks out just six inches into the current they're tucked immediately behind that that can be hard to land two flies really accurately in there and and i'll switch and go to just one um so it just you know it just depends on the situation and, and kind of what happens there um so there's obviously a point when you're like okay this isn't like it's pouring rain or no, not even pouring rain, but the, the, you know, there is points like flood situations. It doesn't warrant going. Where yeah. it's like, just doesn't warrant going. Like if like somebody comes up, to, uh, come, someone comes up <laughs> here, like, do you have any other options? Like to what, like what would For you sure. do? Like what would you do? And so, and that's a great question. It's one of the things that people ask all the time because June is typically the peak of our runoff, right? And June is also conference season where Calgary gets a ton of international travelers coming into town. They're like, I've always heard about the Bow River. I want to fish it. And like, awesome. I can't guarantee what it's going to be like in June. And typically the river's not fishable. And typically we don't do a lot of guiding in June. But what we'll do is this, is I tell people like, we can get you on the water and we're just going to play the conditions by ear. If the water has cleaned up a bit and if it has been fishing well, but like, it doesn't matter. Even you take a guy like Nauto who has spent so many days on the water. And I mean, for the last 15 years, he's out like typically 28 plus days a month. If it's like, it doesn't matter how much you fished it. If the water has been high and it's been in runoff and you haven't fished for three weeks, we still won't take people's money and go out until we fished it ourselves and go, okay, now we're comfortable with this. And it seemed like just like now in spring, we'll float it. And I actually floated today and we'll fish it a bunch before like, okay, I'm comfortable putting clients in this scenario. And if we're not comfortable putting clients out there, because you know what, like weather's great, <laughs> water looks good, fish are not responding at all. Then we'll go do something like one of my favorite things to do is pike fishing at that time of year. There's a few spring creeks that we have. Um, Alpine lakes and some of the other like stillwater opportunities are one of the things that the last few years have really tried to focus on. And because of that, I, I have not fished in peak runoff as much in the last probably five or six years because, you know, especially since COVID, we're seeing this like huge influx of anglers and people getting into the sport and people going out and, you know, everybody's going to the same spots because everyone's on social media and showing like, you know, the bow is an easy place to access and everybody can fish it right after you get off work. And, you know, we all know the stretches in the mountains that everybody goes and everybody is sending their friends to the same spot because that was the first place they caught a cutthroat. So they're going to take their friend there and everyone's, you know, going to see that on a, 
photo on Instagram and go, Oh, I know where that is. Or ask anybody that's been fishing for a few years and they'll go, Oh yeah, that's here. And they go straight there. And so we work pretty hard trying to like, there's so many other angling opportunities, pike on the fly being one of them. I freaking love pike fishing. Like I think there's few fish that are so conducive to fly fishing as pike. Like it's crazy. Like they're, they're amazing. And the other thing that's so fun about pike is you're chasing them like peak time for pike is that May, June when we're going to be in runoff and that's when they're post spawn. And now they're looking to put weight back on. You've got fish that are out that they're looking to stick on a serious amount of weight and feed when they put the feed bag on. That's a fun fish to chase. And so much of it is very visual. Now, a lot of our lakes that we have pike in around Calgary are like Eastern, Southeastern irrigation reservoirs where they're not the most scenic bodies of water, <laughs> right? Because there's no trees within several hours. But because of that, you can get a lot of wind. So the sight fishing that, you know, the classic like pike on the fly where you're standing on the bow of a boat up north and you sight fishing in the bay, we don't get to do as much of that here because it's just windy so often. We still get days. Like last year I had our um shop manager andrew out for a day of pike fishing and it was glass calm and like i can't think of many days i've had that were like that where there was not a breath of wind all day it was so hot it hit 34 35 that day without a breath of wind but i had fished that only two days before with ty from the shop and we saw a few good fish like good fish are those fish like around that 40 and over like that's what most of us when we're chasing pike like we're looking for fish over 40. That's a trophy fish. When you're looking at them in the water, maybe a 38, you know, can look like a 40, but anything like under 38, like their head just isn't as wide. It doesn't have that shovel look to it, that it, it's going to be noticeably much smaller. And you can tell it's not one of those trophy fish, but usually we're seeing those fish on the retrieve once they're closer to the boat. And a ton of the fishing you're doing is blind casting, whereas up north, Typically, it's you never cast. It's like being on a saltwater flat where you don't throw a cast until you pick your fish and you know which way it's facing and you know everything about what you're going to do with the retrieve and the cast and the whole nine yards. Down here, it's a lot more like cast a good water, cast a structure, cast a drop-offs, cast other shallow flats, and then you'll see the fish following. But with the amount of wind and chop we have, it's usually tough to see the fish before you actually cast them. It's another situation, though, where I think by pike fishing, it will make you a far better angler because you can see, like when you see a 40 to like 45 or larger inch fish following your fly, you can usually pick up on that. Even when there is chop, once they get close enough, when they're following your fly, you're going to see them. And you have to learn and redirect to that fish. Because if you just keep the exact same methodical retrieve, you're probably not going to convince that many fish to close the deal and hit that fly. At the point that you see the fish in your retrieve, that fly is, that fly is close enough to you that it's probably been following for quite some time. It has not chosen to eat yet. And that's what I love about streamer fishing, whether we're talking trout in a river or pike in a lake or, you know, a, a tarpon in the ocean. When I see that fish and I can see my fly at the same time, now it's up to me as the angler to read the body language of that fish and make it eat. If it wanted to eat, it would have eaten before I ever knew it was there. I need to make it eat now. 
force that fish to eat. Just like a tarpon following your fly, like make that tarpon eat. If you do the exact same methodical retrieve and don't change anything about it, you'll hook some fish, but you're probably not going to hook anywhere near as many fish as when you start reading and reacting to that fish's body language. And that, that will make you a better angler in all situations. Now you go and you start, you know, fishing little trout in a mountain stream. You start going after, you know, Dorado somewhere like any predatory fish. When you can read and react to body language, it's going to make things so much more effective for you. And that's one of the things I do love about pike. Plus there's something that's a lot of fun about, you know, hooking and putting your hands on a fish in that 45 to like 48 inch range. Like those are true trophies and like, those are pretty special fish. And we're really lucky that, you know, close to Calgary, there's huge pike. Are you fishing right? out of your drift boat most of the time? Some of the time. Yeah. Some of the time for sure. I do a lot of fishing for them still um, from shore as well. Like it's not something where like, if you don't have a boat, you can't do it because most of the fishing we're doing is in spring when those fish are post spawn. And in that kind of one to two months after they finish spawning, they'll typically stay in water that's anywhere from three to maybe eight feet deep before they push out to deeper, deeper water that's colder later in the summer. Like big pike need a lot of oxygen. And obviously cold water holds a lot more dissolved oxygen than warm water does. And that's why you can find little, little hammer handles. Like you can find the little um pike whether you want to call them danger noodles snot rockets ditch pickles whatever we want to call them <laughs> those small fish can hang out in the in the warmer shallow water kind of all year but those big hens especially like most of those fish that you're looking at that are over 40 inches most of those are females and they have to go out to deeper water because they need that deeper colder water that holds more dissolved oxygen and so it just depends on the weather that we get in the spring, whether or not, you know, they can stay till the end of June some years or some years by the beginning of June, they're going to push out and be in deeper water, right? If we had a really hot year. So it, it just, you don't know how much time you've got, but the time that they're in there can be, oh man, it can be so much fun when you watch those big fish. And I have had so many people over the years, guests that came up and always said, listen, like, it's cool. We can plan to do something. We're just not going to set our a plan. You know, you know that your conference is in June, six months before you're coming up here. I don't know what water conditions are going to be until you get here. And so we'll make a plan either the day of or the day before based on what conditions are. And if it's clean enough that we can fish the river, then we'll fish the river. But I've had so many people that came here to fish the bow it was too dirty or wasn't fishing well. So we went pike fishing and they lost their minds. They enjoyed it so much. And they started booking and coming back <laughs> just for pike. And they didn't. And it's like, okay, you've been here four times now and you've still never fished the boat. That was what you originally <laughs> wanted to do. Should we ever do that? And they're like, Oh yeah, I guess we did. Didn't we? But they just kind of get obsessed with fishing for pike and, and how much fun that can be. And honestly, I think there's a lot of, still water opportunities for trout that are out there as well that you know like some of the crony hatches that we get on, on our lakes that we've got these incredible stillwater opportunities and we definitely don't have as many of them as like interior Kamloops area where you look at a map and it's just everywhere you look there's a lake but there's some great fishing that they're not busy at all and you've got all these people fighting for a spot on a river that is high and dirty and it's going to clean up and it's going to fish better. Well, if it's not fishing well, 
why not go fish one of those lakes that are at their prime in the spring when that like there's lots of bug activity those fish are healthy those fish are looking to eat winter's over their metabolism is starting to speed up you know, I why as, as like someone who fishes rivers more that uh, approaching a lake that I've never fished or seen before without some kind of insider tip or knowledge looks very daunting. And I'm like, okay, where do I even start with this? Pike is a bit different, but I feel like trout is, it can be a little more daunting of a, a, a species to take on. So is there any tips when like approaching a lake for the first time with no insider knowledge? Yeah, for sure. And it's one of those things that, uh, without question, I think anything that we do for the first time, like, we should expect it to be daunting. And I think a a lot of us, especially if you get to a point that you're proficient at something, you go and do something that's completely new, and you're like, man, this is harder than I thought. Well, it's supposed to be. Like, that's what new things are. But it'll get better. But it's never, like, we shouldn't let that kind of stop us from trying basically is where I'm going for that. And like, if you've never fished a lake before, the first thing I would just look for, and I mean, I am no still water expert. You guys want to talk to still water people? Like bring on, like Andrew, our shot manager, he loves still water and, and does a ton of it. He spends a ton of time out in BC. He's got a cabin out there. He spends a ton of his spring out there. You know, guys like Phil Rowley that have this wealth of knowledge or George Watt, that guy I was talking about, that was one of my mentors. Like, there's still water gurus out there. I am the furthest thing from that. But at the same time, if you go to a new body of water, like look for depth changes, look for a drop off, look for shoals, just watch for fish cruising. And it's amazing. So many people just hop in the water and just start fishing. Just like we've all seen it where people that like they walk out of their vehicle with their waders on already and they don't stop walking until they waded out into the river to like the top of their waders. And that's the first time they slow down and then they start fishing there. It's like, take the time to just observe. Like if you stand back and watch, you can see, you know what, there's a lot of fish that are coming up on the shallow shoal. I'm not seeing many fish coming up out in the middle. And I just rode my boat out to the middle because, you know, it's got to be better where it's harder to get to. Right. Just like we all want to fish the other side of the river and everybody on the shoreline wishes they were on the other shoreline and they're trying to cast to the middle and all the boats are casting to the shoreline where, you know, it's, it's always a greener pasture somewhere else, but like more than anything. And I think guiding has taught me this so much in the last 20 years where now you're not just trying to catch the fish. You're observing someone else while they're fishing. You're, you're looking around trying to, see the whole lay of the land and see the big picture and see everything and try to process all the things, man, to just sit back and observe, like you'll see fish cruise so often, or you're going to see fish that are rising somewhere, or you're going to see just a color change where it's like, why is there a color change on a lake right there? Well, it's probably because either you've got a weed bed or you've got a completely different bottom, or usually it's because there's a drop off and a depth change. Like if you've got rocky points, if you've got weed beds, if you've got, you know, drop-offs, like fish are going to hold on that structure and kind of any lake, and not just trout, like all fish will. So if you don't know a lake, those are the first things that I would look for is that type of structure. Where is there a depth change and a drop-off? Where is there a, you know, a weed bed that they can hold tight to? Where is there, you know, everybody when it gets windy tries to hide from the wind somewhere. Well, what's happening with all the food? When the wind blows, it's blowing onto the, like the windward side of the lake that those waves are crashing into and it's stirring up and making the water muddy. Well, that's pushing a ton of food onto that side of the lake. So if it's crazy windy, I'd start on that side of the lake, fish a mudline, 
right? Like predatory fish can ambush in the mud line because there's bait fish or bugs or anything else. And they can hide in that mud line and pop out and just, you know, grill whatever food is coming in there. And so, so you, you know, like those are the type of things that I'd look for. So like by the sounds of it, like you're going to, for pike fishing, you're throwing bigger flies usually, well, you're going to have to put some type of wire on there. Right. So you're going to need a bigger rod. Like if somebody's coming out to fish yep. and you're like, okay, you need one, you need one size of rod for fishing out of the boat and one size a rod for pike fishing. Like what, like so, optimally, and- what would you say? it totally depends on what their interest is for the day. And I'll tell people straight up, do you want to catch one big fish or do you want to catch a bunch of fish? Do you want to catch top water and go for numbers? Or do you want, um, like you just want that one big fish because it's two very different ways to fish. And honestly, it would be two different rods because for a lot of people, when they come out and talking about pike fishing, they don't care about like spending all day trying to get one 45 inch fish they want as many fish on the end of the line as possible in that day. And in those cases, like if you go in and fish shallows and you can start throwing even poppers and topwater stuff, like honestly, some of the most fun I've ever had guiding pike, we didn't see a big fish all day and people did not stop laughing all day where you could throw a six weight that has a fighting butt or a seven weight and do just fine because the fish that we were targeting were like 32 inches or less. They're all small fish. Right. And some people go like, if you haven't fished pike, you're thinking, well, 32 inches, that's decent size for a trout, but like, that's a little danger noodle, right? Like they're pretty thin (laughs) for pike. They're going to be pretty skinny, but they're super aggressive and they will absolutely annihilate topwater stuff. It's a lot harder to get big fish to come up and hit topwater stuff. I spent a lot of time trying to get them to do it and have buddies that are like, take the stupid popper off and just hook a fish. I'm like, I know, but I just want one. Right. But my, my like experience with just to interrupt you, my experience with the, with the small pike is, is they always feel big, right? Like, especially mm-hmm. if you don't see them eat, you're like, Oh, it's a good one. And then it's quickly uh, followed by, uh, actually it's not that big. They hit so hard that, and yeah. whether they're little or medium or these huge fish, like they hit so hard that everyone feels like it's 40 inches. that's my experience anyways yeah and and people think they have a giant and that's why like honestly if you're fishing a bunch of small pike like that they're going to be a riot on a six weight whereas if you take out the 10 weight that we're using for the really big fish and the really big flies and you're hooking a bunch of fish that are 30 inches and less like you're just going to be skipping them across the surface of the water and towing them in and it's not going to have the same level of enjoyment so that's why a lot of people are like, well, what do I need for pike? Like, I, I want to try pike in my lake at home because it's got lots of pike in it. But like, so I need a nine or a 10 weight. And you're like, well, what's the size of fish in there? They're like, ah, most of them are like 25 to 34 inches. You're like, it's a fish is six or seven weight. Like that fish is going to be a riot on that rod. Um, you know, and you don't need to throw giant flies. Like pike will hit huge stuff, but a lot of it comes down to what they haven't seen. So, so many bodies of water we have around here. I mean, if you're within a two hour drive of the city of 1.3 million people, they done seen some hooks already, right? Like mm-hmm. whether it's lures, whether it's all the ice fishing and tip ups and, and bait, the guys have fished all winter long or flies. There are some lakes that we absolutely mopped up for years throwing flies and you didn't have to throw big flies. Like you could throw a three inch bunny fly, absolutely clean up all day long. 
because they'd never seen flies. It was brand new. They hadn't seen it. They were used to, you know, spoons and spinner baits and, you know, giant jigs and crankbaits and all sorts of repellas, everything else. They'd seen every version of that, but they hadn't seen flies and that was new. And so it worked really, really well. And then when they started getting used to that, we started fishing bigger and bigger flies. And I absolutely love, like personally, I love throwing a 10 to even 18 inch fly or larger. And like, you, I won't throw stuff 18 inches or larger for pike very often, but for muskie, I will. Um, I love big rods, big flies. I really enjoy casting heavy rigs. Again, the stuff that people are like, oh, you can't cast that. I'm like, oh, watch me. Like, it's like casting a whole chicken. I'm like, well, a chicken with half of a rabbit attached to it. Right? And so, like, Josh, if you want if you want to get a big pike, what kind of techniques? If you're just out for that one big one, what kind of techniques are you going to use? So if you want that one big fish, then I would say you need at least a nine weight rod, a nine or a ten. Um, you need some sort of bite guard. Some people use floral. I've like there's not much I haven't tried in terms of pike setups and leaders. Like I've tried fluoro everything from like 60 through 200 pound fluoro for pike anything up to 100 pound um i still i'll fish it but i still worry about stuff in that 80 to 100 pound getting bit off um and it's not while you're fighting the fish if you hook that fish and outside of smelt it's fine it's on that hook set on those big fish like if you're talking about a fish especially down here our fish have five months longer growing season than a fish that's up north right? Our ice goes on way later than it does when you're up around the Arctic Circle or if you're up in Northwest Territories or Northern Saskatchewan, something like that. And then it comes off way earlier. Like there's lots of years that by the end of March, the ice is already off. Well, ice doesn't typically come off most of those lakes up north until like middle of June, right? And they're getting the ice whaler. So our fish have way longer to grow and they're not just going to get exponentially longer what they do is they get way heavier. So if you've got a fish that's in that 20 to even 30 pound range, that there's so much mass there that if you set hard with a stiffer rod and you catch a tooth, you can just slice right through 100 pound floral like it's not even there. And it doesn't happen that often, but when it does, it happens on the fish that you didn't want it to happen on. So you're not using wire leaders? I use wire more than I use floral now. I used to... I used to fish back and forth, like I would change. And like when I go fishing, if I'm fishing by myself, and especially the last two years when we had COVID and like everybody had to be in their own boats and we're all sitting in our own boats side by side, I would fish, like I would have three or four rods set up in the boat that all had different leaders and different flies. So if I get a fish that follows, I don't have to worry about trying to like open up a snap or anything and put a new fly on. I just grab another rod and trying to find like, does floral work better? Does wire work better? Tieable wire, how heavy? I like to fish at least 30 pound or heavier for wire. Um, I was absolutely blown away the difference we saw when we were up at Cree Lake Lodge this past year in June. I was fishing 40 pound tieable wire and Nauto and Yosh were in the same boat and they were fishing the nickel titanium, which was 55 pound, but a fraction the diameter of even 30 pound tieable wire, a fraction the diameter. And it was silly how badly they were outfishing me. Like humbling how badly they were. And I switched up leaders and it was it was a night and day difference. It was just like it's so crazy. That's interesting because I've always thought I've always, I've always like it's 
you know, because people fish with wire for so long for pike, and, you know, and it never kind of really got thought of, right? And you're like, I'm convinced Mm -hmm. it's the leader. You know, I'm I'm like, you know, just from coming from a trout background and, you know, I'm always like, man, it's got to be the leader. They must be leader shy, right? Or, and you, even with like barracuda and stuff too, right? Like, yeah. yeah, absolutely. If they've seen fishing pressure and they've been caught before, which, like, that's our reality. When you have catch and release, fish do get bigger on average, but they also get much smarter on average, too, because once they've been caught before, like, they typically don't want that to happen again. And especially down here, like, that's what blew me away was up north at a lodge like that, that you're like, they don't see a lot of fishing pressure, and, and of the pressure they see, very little of it is flies, so it shouldn't make much difference. There was a night and day difference. And when I think about some of the days that we had down here where there's way more fishing pressure. I mean, I have watched, like, there's so much ice fishing that happens. And there's so many derbies and everything. The amount of pressure that those fish see all winter long that, like, fish are flaring on actual dead baits, right, under tip-ups. So now what happens when we start putting an artificial fly in there? Well, like, the odds are stacked way against you when these fish are, you know, they've seen so much pressure that they don't even trust actual dead fish that they find. Yeah. They're going to inspect our flies way closer. And so a thinner leader, a longer leader. And that was one of the things that I've certainly gone to in the last couple of years. And I've had a couple of days that really stood out where, you know, I'd gotten lazy and probably changed flies too many times. And the leader got shorter and shorter and shorter where it was only like three feet long. And, you know, the fishing kind of slows down again and then had somebody else start fishing, like take turns rowing or something. And now somebody else starts fishing and they're fishing their rod with a longer leader and they just start mopping up. And you're like, like, I feel like I fished it pretty well and I wasn't touching fish and we're using a similar fly. And that leader, I think, makes a huge difference on pressured fish. So I really like the nickel titanium leaders because I think they're the thinnest leaders for how strong they're. It's not cheap. Right, like it costs a lot more than um, you know the the typical tieable or, or braided wire is, but I think it's worth it. And if you're after that one big fish, that's what I would go to for sure. Um, most of the fishing can be done for sure with a floating line. Um, I like even if it's an eight weight or a nine weight or a ten weight, I don't want just a general all round taper. I want something like I love the SA's Titan taper. Um, it's a long enough taper that if you're carrying line and you're throwing long casts, you still have stability while you're carrying 60 feet of line. There's some like that bank shot I was talking about earlier. That's an awesome line if your casts are going to be under 40 feet and you're not false casting much. All you're doing is one false cast and then flies right back in the water and you don't have to worry about, you know, that multiple false casts and that losing stability. Think about it like, throwing a football with dental floss on the back of it. The football is going to take the dental floss a long ways, but you have no control over that football when you throw it, when you're holding on to the dental floss. Now, if you threw that football attached to a garden hose, well, now you're going to feel a little bit more control um, and not just once it lands on the water when it comes to mending, but also just that stability in the air. And so that's why I like a longer taper um, and those, those tighten longs are awesome for that. There's other, like, lots of companies have a pike line out there, um, pike or musky line. There's lots of other good lines out there. Um, those are some of the ones that I, I really like, though. Something that's bigger, that's going to turn over bigger flies, 
but also has a long enough rear taper that you're going to feel stable if you're false casting and you're carrying, you know, 50 to 60 feet of line and then trying to dump a whole fly line, you're going to feel a lot more stability. Whereas if you try and dump that whole fly line with that, um, that bank shot line, it feels a little sketchy and a little wobbly in the air because you really feel like you're pulling on dental floss attached to a football. I'm still so. just thinking about like the wire leader, like the, uh, because, and your, and your setup for how long your leader was and, and, and you saying how someone did so much better because they had this longer leader and stuff. And it's like, when you first start trout fishing, when you change your, your flies a lot and then you have like this terrible setup, but you're so new and you're not that good at to like tying your knots and stuff. You'll fish this terrible setup and it's, but as you get it more seasoned, do you realize that, you know, that does not work? And it's just kind of funny cause I'm not that experienced in, in pike fishing. And so I really haven't adjusted my setups too much over the years. So uh, yeah. yeah, it just really, it's got me thinking about, uh, some things I can, I'm going to change up this season. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things to keep in mind, and I didn't say this and I should clarify that I, I will fish a way longer leader if I'm fishing a floating line than if I'm fishing a sink tip. So if I'm fishing a sink tip, I'll try and run at least three to even five feet. I used to run them like two feet tops um, sometimes. And, and it just, the thing is, is if you don't want to run a nine foot leader, on a sink tip and have your fly stuck on the surface while your fly lines down nine feet, right? That defeats the purpose of running a sink tip. But at the same time, um, if you're dealing with pressured fish, the further you can keep the fish away from your fly line, the better. Do you think while the, still keeping your fly in the zone that you need it to be in. And the, and the, the real advantage to the sink tip, well, I believe so is that kind of consistent depth you can run the sink tip at, yes. which is a lot more difficult yep. when you're running a floating line. Would you agree to that? Uh, yeah. Honestly, a lot of it comes down to the material that the flies you're fishing are made out of. So there's a ton of really cool pike flies out there or musky flies that have a ton of bucktail or materials that have a lot of buoyancy. On a floating line, you're going to be dragging that thing right at the surface or on the surface. And a sink tip will allow you to get down and fish deeper. Like a ton of the pike fishing that we're doing, like the majority of it is, is less than 10 feet of water. And even out of that, I would say that 80% of it is still less than six feet of water. So I don't need a sink tip because I'm trying to get super deep. I need a sink tip because I want my fly at a specific depth. And that's why I will have a rod set up. Uh, like when I'm talking about if I have four rods in the boat, I'll have a rod with a floating line. I will have a rod with an intermediate tip on it and I will have a, a rod with a much faster tip on it. And sometimes like in the fall, let's say when it gets really cold and those fish are starting to get sluggish again and they're moving out of the deep water and they're starting to come up into those shallow bays again, or even in the spring, if we're talking about the, t the time of year where, you know, runoff is happening and, and we're going to fish these lakes because rivers are blown out. So water is super cold, moving the fly really quickly is not that advantageous. And it's one of the situations like when I've guided at flying lodges up north and you look at, you can have some phenomenal gear anglers that come up there and they get so badly outfished by someone who's fly fishing that doesn't have nearly the experience level. And it's because of the, the, the lures versus the flies. 
the majority of lures, whether you're talking about a spoon, a crankbait, a spinnerbait, like virtually any lure, it requires motion to activate the action of the lure or the bait. Whereas with a fly, it's moving and breathing and pulsating just while it's sinking. It can drop on the bottom and you could twitch it and move it half an inch and then that tail just flutters up and it flutters down. And that, that fly might take three or four seconds just to stop moving and settle in position again. And so you can have super cold water where those fish are super sluggish and you can drop a fly right in front of their nose and just kind of twitch it and just taunt them and make it just way too easy to eat. Those calories are going to be so simple and it's so inviting that they, that big pike just inhales it. Whereas what happens if you drop a spoon in front of it? Like it has no motion. It has no attractive nature. There's no wobble. There's no vibration. There's no flash, you know, a big spinner, all those things. The exception to that is the, the gear folks that are throwing like the big plastic baits, like sluggos that they can twitch those things and they'll just flutter. Those folks can absolutely clean up. <laughs> they can clean up and they can do it super well. But when the water is really cold and those fish are really sluggish, we don't want to move the fly away from a fish really quickly. And it's one of the things that you see a lot. People that have uh, like a, a lot of experience fishing for small to medium sized pike, when they start targeting those really big fish in the spring, when they're post spawn and they're sluggish and the water's cold, you know, they're up in the shallows trying to warm up, trying to speed up their metabolism so that they can feed more and put more weight on. And so if you're ripping a fly really quickly, they might follow for a bit or just completely ignore it because they're like, that's way too much work. They've lost so much of their body weight when they're spawning that they cannot afford to chase something and not catch it. So they want easy meals and often they want big meals. And so that's where you can throw big flies and giant flies. But one of the things that we've seen in recent years is that because fish hadn't seen flies around here very often 20 years ago, you could throw any fly and do amazingly well. And then as they started to get more used to those, we started throwing kind of bigger flies and bigger flies and seeing bigger fish chase them and bigger fish eat. And it was great. You got bigger and bigger and bigger until we were throwing these obscenely large flies and guys are going by and both going, you're casting a whole chicken, you know, you're laughing. But it got to a point that when people couldn't cast those larger flies, like not everyone is going to be comfortable throwing a 10 inch fly. And we have a lot of lakes that fish would flare at 30 feet from the boat. So if the fish are flaring at 30 feet from the boat and you can only cast a 10 inch fly 40 feet, that meant you only had a 10-foot fishable retrieve on your cast. And what we started seeing is the people that could throw bigger flies longer distance were, were like cleaning up, again, because it was completely new. It was different. The fish weren't used to seeing these giant flies. What we started seeing a ton of around here was people trolling flies. And so they're just using a trolling motor, and they're just back and forth and weaving up and down because they couldn't cast the flies far enough or weren't consistently hooking fish when they were casting them but when they troll them they would pick up fish so they're trolling back and forth catching these fish and then they're hopping out of the boat and they're taking the picture in the shallows and the fly rods on their shoulders and says hashtag only counts on the fly <laughs> and they've never cast one of those flies in life like it's it it is so common you wouldn't believe it and there's people that'll hear this and cringe i know hearing that but like it is such a common thing to see on a lot of those lakes yeah. And a bunch of gear guys 
we're buying up those big flies like crazy. Like we would get huge yeah. orders from gear guys that are like, Oh, I'm not fly fishing. I'm just trolling these because they were watching the, the fly anglers just clean up on these giant flies. And so they started fishing them. And all of a sudden those big flies didn't work anywhere near as well again, yeah. because on these highly pressured areas, if that's what everyone's doing, you can't expect a different result. Mm-hmm. And then, it's funny that these tiny little like two inch, three inch flies where people were fishing for, you know, walleye or they were even going after whitefish and they're hooking these huge pike and they're like, it was so weird. And it's like, yes and no. It's everything that's dangerous is 10 inches long. Yeah. I just started eating stuff that's two and three inches long too. I, I'm even if I have I'm to eat see- a lot more of it. You can't see me right now, but I'm cringing because you just gave away one of my secrets for catching <laughs> fish. I, I, I don't know what story you're thinking of, Darcy. No, I know, but I'm, I'm not going to devolve. I'm just going to let Josh tell his secrets. But yeah, that's, that's uh, I'm like, oh no, he's told something that I always seem to do, you know? I'm like, oh, everybody's throwing big flies. I'm throwing a little one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, and I talk about the exact same thing, like trout fishing, and we did. So in October, we did a, another masterclass with April and Anchored Outdoors there. And it was on catching like highly educated, pressured and spooky fish. Well, like talk about that same thing. Like it doesn't matter if we're talking about an educated pike or an educated brown trout or cutty or rainbow or brook trout. Like it doesn't matter if that, if that fish is seeing a ton of pressure, just do something different than what everyone else is doing. If everyone's throwing giant foam bugs, try something tiny. If you're going down and you're fishing the Mo, like the Missouri in Montana, and everyone is throwing small, well, maybe try throwing something bigger. Like, do something different than what they see. If if 99 out of 100 flies are 10 inches long, try a 3-inch fly. But if everybody is throwing 3-inch flies, well, maybe try a 10-inch fly. Like, just that's one of the things that it, it is easy to get stuck in your habits and a pattern of, like, I've been doing this and this has worked, so I'm going to keep doing this. And we kind of forget that maybe it's not working as well as it used to, or maybe it's getting tougher and just change. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's easy to get stuck in a rut. Like, especially when you can have it when you're guiding, when you're like, well, this fly was working so well last week. Well, that oh, was wait, last week. What's wait, happening this week? Or wait. 10 minutes ago <laughs> for that yeah. matter, or half an hour, an hour yeah. ago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can get stuck in your ways as an angler for sure. Like you're like, oh yeah, last year, the, like the, or this like past season, this fly worked so well. I'm going to tie like 20 of them over the off season. And then you try and use it the next year and it doesn't seem to work. And <laughs> yeah. then you have the, yeah. it's come full circle for me. Like I've tied all these stimulators along, not that they don't work, but I just didn't you, I still have some, like I tied so many. I think I got obsessed <laughs> yeah. with well, the when stimulant. foam became so big. We, we were like, I'm not yeah. fishing foam anymore because the fish see foam all the time. So when everybody's throwing foam, we throw stimulators, just like you said. Right. And yeah. we like, it would, it like increased our catchability. And then all of a sudden yeah. one day it just stopped working and you're like, why did it stop working? You know? And then you just go yeah. less profile or, or whatever. Right. Just like you said, like change it up. Yeah. And one of the worst things about that is like, you probably tied too many of them. The fish know how many flies you've tied. If you have a good stock, they'll stop eating it. But if you only have one left, they will eat that fly forever. Yeah, yeah. Until there's nothing left. <laughs> like as, soon as, you, like, as soon as you sit down and commit to, I'm going to tie 
500 of these because this has been my best fly for 10 years in a row and I'm always out of it. The instant you sit down and tie that many, it will never work again. Like I probably went 10 years without fishing a lightning bug because I had like five or six years where that was my number one dropper. If I was nymphing, you know, under an indicator, I would still fish that fly. Like it cleaned up and I was, I was always tying, like I would finish guiding at the end of the night, I would sit down, I would tie five or six because I need some more for tomorrow. And I had a buddy that would always buy them off me. He's like, I want yours. They work better than the ones in the store. I'm like, sure, I don't have time. Like I got home at midnight, you know, it, it took me an hour to tie five for myself. And so I would tie five for him. And when you're almost always out of it, that fly always worked. The moment I sat down and tied 500, they never worked again. Well, it's <laughs> and come, you're just it's like, evil. For me with like, when I tied all those stimulators, stimulators I, I had I, to the point where it, I don't know, it had to be like seven, eight years. It, I'm actually getting through the stock now because I started using them again. <laughs> I found them easier to yeah. cast than some of the foam too. And so I was like, ah, actually yeah. these, these are working again for me. I, I'm, I'm yeah. But it, it's just kind of funny how that happens. <laughs> yeah. And they won't twist up a leader as badly as foam does. Like there's, that's the other thing foam does too, is like there's some cool flies that have like giant rubber legs coming off it or even like silicone legs coming off the bodies and, those look really cool, but what people forget too is if you lose the legs on one side, that fly is now lopsided, and when it's traveling through the air at speed, it's going to twist or spin because there's a rudder on one side and not the other, and so you've turned it into this spinning disc as it goes through the air, and you get huge tangles where it's fine at the beginning when the whole fly is still balanced, but as soon as that fly comes out of balance, some of those flies, you have to cut the legs off both sides, or retire the fly because they can absolutely destroy your leader. I, I, I can't agree more. A friend of ours uses a stone fly with no legs on it and it sits super low in the water. And what it looks like to me is a stick floating we down the, the stick. We're we like, call right. it, you're, you're, like, you're fishing the stick again, right? Cause that's yeah. what it looks like in the water and he catches a ton of fish. So, but nobody fishes yeah. that fly. It's like, the, you know, like it's like an old school, uh, stone fly, you know, dry fly, like no legs, no foam, just, I can't even remember, I can't remember what's in it, but it basically looks like a stick, like but a stick it catches fish, <laughs> it catches fish with, without a doubt. Yeah. He knows how to put it uh, at the like, right spot at the right speed. And that's more, yeah, more and important than anything. Yeah. And kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier too, with like runoff conditions and stuff, the biggest fish I've ever guided on this river came on a Clouser minnow. Right. I got a, I, it was a day was it poured rain. The water was filthy, dirty. We got I, like one fish before one little eddy that I pulled into that we pulled three fish out of that eddy and it went 21, 22. No, it wasn't in order. It was 22, 21, 23. And that 23, we had to go about 50 yards downstream to land that fish. And I was just like, okay, I followed it with a boat and then I started walking the boat back up. They're like, Josh, you don't have to do this. I'm like, that's fine. Like, it's been a tough day. Like we haven't seen any fish until right now. One fish, one fish previous to that. I'm like, I'm, I'm walking the boat back up there and I fought the current and it was miserable and it took me way longer than it should have to get the boat back up 50 yards. But we went back up there and we went through one more time and the fish that he hooked was a 28 and a half inch hen of all things. It wasn't even a, a male. It was a hen that like just such a spectacular fish 
in dirty water fishing a clouser minnow that I don't fish in that often. And I put it on because it, it was the fly that I'm assuming that those fish hadn't seen as often. I used to get a ton of like really nice fish too on zonkers because again, it's an old fly that doesn't get fished that often. And you know, it's why I still have zonkers at the shop, even though people are like, wow, like anybody buy these things? I'm like, not a ton, but the ones that do, Buy them a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, the, right? big, the biggest you know, fish I saw caught out of the Elbow River was on a clouser, too. Yeah, a the shar- same guy shar- that fishes the stick fishes the clouser yeah, minnow all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fish, so. A chartreuse clouser minnow, minnow, and he caught the hugest brown trout on the Elbow. It was just a massive, yeah. massive fish, and it was like the middle of the winter, too. And like, I, I can definitely say I scoffed at him as he fished it down. I was like, he's not catching it. <laughs> yeah. We had discussed yeah. what he was fishing. We were like, what are you fishing? Yeah, yeah. And then he gets this huge, beautiful, magnificent fish, and we were like, well, uh, I guess we that should. That always uh, feels good, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, <laughs> well, and it's funny, too, because like even though I know that that's the biggest fish I've ever got, I still don't fish a clouser that often, and they're like, in the last few years, I've fished Creelix minnows more, which is essentially just a flashy clouser. But, like, it's such a simple fly that we've got in our heads. Like, it's got to be articulated, and it's got to have a spun deer hair head, you know, and it's got to have flash, and it's got to be fancy, and it's got to be new. And, you know, when everyone is trying to throw what's newest and the latest and the greatest, it's a lot easier to throw what's old and traditional and a standby, mm-hmm. right? Because there's, like, trying to stay in front of everybody has become way harder than I think just using what everybody stopped fishing anymore. Like when we talk about like, fish a stinking print stamp, fish a pheasant tail, a hare's ear instead of, you know, something with a robot name that has a, you know, disco ball in it instead of a bead head. Yeah. You know, we just, we overthink things and get too complimented, too calm complicated. I talk good, eh? Yeah. <laughs> um, right. It, it's one of those things that, you know, if a fly pattern is still around that someone invented 60 years ago, there's probably really good reason for that. <laughs> yeah, traditional flies, there's yeah. a reason. Every, everything comes full circle. Um, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, so i I just like to thank you, Josh. Um, just every time I think I know... All there is to know, I I definitely picked up at least a few things that I'm going to use. Um, 100%. One of, yeah, yeah, in the future. Well, yeah, so I'm I'd glad. Like to thank you a, a ton, Josh, for coming on. I re- we oh, anytime. I'm happy to, I always enjoy talking to you guys, and it's funny how often we end up meeting and talking, like, at OGR down in Montana or somewhere else instead of Calgary when we live in the same <laughs> city, and you just, lives get so busy and everything going on, so it's it's uh i appreciate it it's nice to be able to sit down and chat with good people that have done done a lot of good so um appreciate the opportunity yeah definitely we'll definitely have you on again and um yeah have a great night and thank you you as well all right all the best you guys thanks again i want to thank josh for being such an amazing guest today and giving us time out of his very very busy schedule I think it's worth mentioning that Josh has done a major renovation and doubled the space of his storefront. He has a designated teaching area too with some free classes you might want to check out. If you live in the Calgary area, make sure to stop by and check out Josh's upgrades. Or if you're coming down, swing by the shop. Thanks again for listening to the episode, everyone. Have a great day.